Hey, this is Lee Snow. I'm the preacher of Orange Springs Road Church of Christ, and this is our podcast. I wanted to thank you for downloading today. I hope it inspires you. I hope it builds your faith. I hope it gives you a perspective to see what God wants to do in your life. And I hope it challenges you to a faithful tomorrow. morning everybody go ahead and open up to Luke chapter 21 Luke the 21st chapter we will be studying another battle that shaped the history of scripture and this one is a little different this one is one that is not recorded in scripture it is prophesied in scripture the last three that we've done the battle of Jericho the battle of Aphek and the Battle of Soka, or the Elah Valley, have all been recorded in Scripture. However, the battle in Luke 21 is not recorded. It is prophesied. But before we get there, I'm going to be honest with you. Uh, We're going to be talking about a battle today that is, uh, it shaped the history of Scripture for one reason, but it shaped the history of mankind for another reason, because this battle, the battle for Jerusalem, was one of the bloodiest battles that has ever existed. It was one of the hardest fought battles that had existed in the last in 200 years since the, the capture of Carthage. At that time period, it was the largest, one of the largest military movements uh, in the ancient history. And so it is a deep, it is a tough, it is a kind of emotionally taxing discussion. And so I'm going to do my best to not wear y'all out. And so what I wanted to do was start you off with just a little, uh, a little military humor. Are you ready? Why, do, why does Norway put barcodes on their Navy ships so when they get home, they can scan the Navy in? <laughs> okay, anyways. All right, you ready? Now, Luke chapter 21. You get it? You get it? Okay, good. I said that... It, camp this past week and all the kids looked at me like, what? What's a Scandinavian? Anyways, all right. Luke chapter 21, the battle of Jerusalem. In AD 66, the Jewish people of Jerusalem decided they were going to rebel. And so these Jewish rebels took the strongholds, the Roman militaristic strongholds all over the region of Judea from Dan to Beersheba, as it is said, all over the Canaan land, the Jewish rebels amassed a a fairly large army, but Rome was not ready for a civil war in the Judean realm, Judean Judean area. And so they took over all, if not the vast majority, of the major militaristic strongholds of Rome in the area. And so because of that, Nero, the the emperor at that time, the same Nero who two years before this in 64 AD had decided that he was going to build what he called his golden domicile, his golden house. He wanted a third of the city of Rome to be his house, complete with a new circus Maximus, complete with, uh, that's the pre-runner to the Colosseum. If you've ever been to Rome, you've seen the Colosseum. That's the pre-runner is the circus Maximus. Um... He wanted a new hanging gardens that were supposed to have been planned to rival the hanging gardens of Babylon in the city of Nineveh in ancient history. He wanted to build a giant 
30-meter-tall statue of himself called the Colossus of Nero. If you know any of the seven ancient, uh, seven, whatever they're called, of the ancient world, wonders of the ancient world, you know that the Hanging Gardens of Babylon was one of them, that the, um, the Colossus was one of them. And Nero is decided in 64 AD that he is going, he is going to build all, if not the majority, of the seven wonders of the ancient world, but they're going to be to his name instead of to these other people's names and to these other pagan gods' names. And so he burns down half of the city of Rome. Then he blames it on the Christians, who at that point were seen by culture as just, they're just a a part of uh, the Jewish sect, that Christians are just an offshoot of Judaism, and so they're still part of the Jewish religion. And so in 64 AD, he burns the city and he blames it on Christians and Jews. In 66 AD, the Jews get tired of being treated as one of the Christians because they believe that, they believe Nero that the Christians burnt down the city of Rome, but they don't, they want people to know that they are not part of the Christians. And so they mount an offensive, they take over the Judea area, and now they are in charge. They are going to try to set up the historical nation of Israel once again. Nero dispatches a man by the name of Vespasian and his son, Titus, Vespasian's son, Titus. They get there in the summer of 67 AD, about a year after the rebellion has begun. Vespasian is a normal Roman military leader. He's the one that would eventually, we'll talk about in just a second, become Caesar, the emperor of Rome. And the problem is that Vespasian was not a nice person. Rome was known for their less than moral treatment of people who they thought weren't as good as Romans. And so Vespasian and Titus began to take over the land. Here's a map of where they start. In 67, they start at the top of the map. And by 68 AD, they have fought and gained all of the region of Galilee. And now they are sitting at Jerusalem's door. They're, they're just a couple miles away. In fact, between, where's my pointer? Between the Mediterranean Sea and this river called the River Jordan, that's only about the distance from here to halfway between Auburn and Montgomery. So they fought and they've captured all of the north, all of Galilee where Jesus and most of the disciples are from. And now they're fighting down toward Jerusalem. This one right here is Jerusalem. They're now in Judea. Vespasian and Titus have have successfully mounted forces against the the Jewish rebellion and they're taking over the city. In early 68 AD, the, the violence becomes even more so to the point where when they reach this, Samaria, the people in Judea, the Jewish rebels, find out that the Roman army is coming south, not because of messengers, not because of scouts. When the Roman army meets Samaria and they take that stronghold in Samaria, the people in Judea find out that the Romans are coming because of the bodies that are washing down the Jordan River the same river that Jesus was baptized in, the same river that Joshua crossed over in much the same way that Moses crossed over and to take the Canaan land and Moses crossing into Sinai over the Red Sea, the same river that was the 
was part of the foundation of early Christianity. And they find out that Rome is coming to them because of the bodies that Rome is sending down the river as a a mental siege. You see, the city of Jerusalem has not been sieged yet at this point, but they are already playing mind games. And so, in the summer of 68 AD, another thing happens. Nero, this, this famed persecutor of Christians, this famed emperor who has been on the seat now for 13 years at this point, who has not yet built his golden city, his golden domicile, his golden house, he dies unexpectedly. And Vespasian was one of his favorites. That's why Vespasian was chosen by Nero to go to Jerusalem to take care of the Judean rebellion. And so Vespasian puts in a bid for the emperor. He wants to be the leader of the Roman nation. And he's granted that. You see, that summer of 68 AD is known as, <clears throat> is known as the summer of four emperors because they didn't really know who was going to take charge after Nero died. It was, it was all of a sudden. They didn't plan on it, and, they, and Nero didn't really find a successor before he died, and so Vespasian is given that ability. Now, that's 68 A.D., He doesn't find out, you know, back then you couldn't email, you couldn't text. We didn't have Twitter or CNN or Facebook or Fox News or MSNBC to spread news around. And so it took a little while for Vespasian to hear that he had been chosen as the next next emperor. And so by early 69 AD, Vespasian leaves. The man who has been leading the charge against the Jewish rebellion is now gone. He is going back to, Jer- to Rome to take the emperorship, to take the throne of the, in- of the, the nation, the empire, the, the world, as it were, the Roman Empire. Leaving his son Titus in charge. Now Titus has never run an army before. He's been his daddy's right-hand man, but he's never actually done this, and so Titus takes a break. You see, he made it all the way to here, just a few miles away from Jerusalem before his dad leaves. And now he's in charge, so he holds back. He sits back, he waits, he collects himself, he gets a plan together. And during that time, all of the Christians in Jerusalem know what's about to happen, and they leave. And now in Jerusalem are the people, the population, somewhere a couple hundred thousand people most likely, about 20,000 Jewish rebel troops, and all of the hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people who are coming to Jerusalem as pilgrims for the Passover. And in April 70 AD, Titus moves on Jerusalem. He builds, well, not yet, but he will build a, a wall around the city of Jerusalem called a circumvent wall. And Titus besieges the city of Jerusalem. Now the problem is, Jerusalem, the rebels, have already, they've known that this is their last stronghold. Kind of like last week when we talked about uh, the Valley of Elah and the Ephes Damim, the, 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 the place of the blood, right? They know, the rebels know that if, if Rome gets to Jerusalem, we've already lost. I mean, we've lost the entire north. The, the likelihood of us actually making out of, uh, out of it alive is pretty slim. And so they start stockpiling weapons. 
They start stockpiling armor. They start stockpiling uh, ammunition in the form of the rocks, like the same rocks that David would be fighting with. You see, Rome has siege weapons, rams, chariots, the, the best of the best armor, the best of the best weapons. And the Jewish rebels have what they've captured from Rome and sticks and spears and slings. And so they hold up in Jerusalem with the population, 20,000 troops, and all of the pilgrims. The problem is they were planning on this to happen when it wasn't Passover time. They don't have enough food. They don't have enough food to last hardly at all. In fact, the only thing that they have enough of is water. Because if you read the gospel accounts, you notice all the times that Jesus goes to the pool of Siloam, the pool of Bethesda, the pool of this, the pool of that. Jerusalem was built in an area with springs, and so they have plenty of water, but you can only last so long with water. And so in April of 70 AD, Titus moves on Jerusalem. These are the legions that Titus directed to go to Jerusalem. And this is a map of the city of Jerusalem. Now you'll notice on the left side is the upper city and the lower city. That's, the, that's what's called the old city. That's the city of David. That's the city that has been on the earth since the time that Israel captured the Canaan land and King Saul established the nation and David united the nation. The old city on the left has been there for that long. At the bottom is the temple. In the middle is the second city. Once they outgrew the old city, the city of David... They grew out into the second city. Eventually, when Rome takes over, they grow even more, and they grow into the new city at the top right. And so Jerusalem has three walls. The catch is, the wall down here, I mean, if I'm going to look at this city and try to take over this city, I'm going to go right here, where there's only one wall, and I'm going to take the city of David first, where all this is all of the elites that live right here. This is all of the masses that live right here. I'm going to go to this city, and I'm going to take this, and then we'll worry about all this new stuff later. And that's exactly what Titus does. The problem is, um, that wall has been there for thousands of years now. It's not that easy to break through. And the Jews had built tunnels that they could get out. And so Titus commands that all of the, the area around the city are going to be a Cleared of all obstructions, all trees, all gravesides, all uh, homes, everything. Tear it down. Get it to where I can see the wall. And he's set up at the bottom where he's trying to take the old city where the elites live. And he can't do it. He gets tired of that and he goes to the north side and he breaks through the third wall into the new city. He builds ramps. He builds the things that he needs He takes his siege armor and he busts through the wall relatively easily. So now he's inside the city. He burns the entire new city to the ground. This this area up here on the top right is where they're entering in. He burns that entire thing to the ground and now he focuses on the second city. We're going to tear down this city one by one. Titus is mad. He's never led in. What happens when you get a young gun and charge that gets upset and he's ready to just, this is my, this is the time that I'm going to show that I am in charge. And so 
he goes to the central city, to the central gate, to the second city rather. And after four days of hard fighting, he takes the second city. Then he's left with this, all the blue, the Temple Mount and the old city, the hardest fortification that he's faced in his entire career. Eventually, he gets mad and he decides, I'm going to tear down the Temple Mount. Now, if you've ever seen the Temple Mount, it is very tall and it's completely made of stone. He says, I'm going to tear it down one brick at a time and he can't do it. Eventually, after some finagling and some, some very interesting war techniques, he takes the Antonia, the fortress at the top of the Temple Mount, and he destroys it, and now he's on the Temple Mount. And he takes that temple, the temple built by Herod, the temple that was originally built by Solomon, the temple that has been the place for over a thousand years that the Jewish people have worshipped the God of the Old Testament, Jehovah. He takes those stones that built that temple and he throws them off. He completely destroys the temple. He can't destroy the temple mount, it's just too big. But he destroys the temple. And he throws them off. And if you've ever seen pictures of the eastern wall, the wailing wall, you've seen the large piles of stone and the gravel and the, the, the road is all bent up. It's because they would take giant pieces of the temple and they'd hurl them over the side as, again, this, this mental siege of the people of Jerusalem. Eventually, he takes the temple, he takes the, uh, he takes the old city, and he destroys everything in the city. The only thing left standing is the temple mount because it's just too big and too heavy and they didn't have enough time to mess with that. They burn all the city. They burn the the new city. They tear down the old city that was mostly made of stone. They kill everyone that they can find. They take no prisoners. And at that point, at the fall of Jerusalem, when Titus finally takes over the old city, that is essentially... The end of Judaism as we know it. They don't have the Torahs anymore. All they have are the Torahs that were in the synagogues scattered all around the world. They don't have the genealogies that were stored, mind you. The genealogies are stored in that that they tore down at first. And in this place, which is called Solomon's Porch that you read about in the Gospel accounts. This is the gate called Beautiful, by the way. And so now they have no genealogies, no original Torahs, they have no Holy of Holies, they have no remnant of the temple at all, they don't have the city, and so Judaism ceases to exist. The Jews that we have today are factions that have later taken on the religion of Judaism, but at that point, Judaism ceases. Now why did I spend the first 20 minutes of my sermon Talking about that, Lee, won't you just get to the scriptures? Here's the catch. I wanted you to realize just how hard fought this war was, this battle was. I wanted you to realize just how destroyed the city really was after they finished it. Because in Luke 21, we're going to read the prophecy of what happens. And I need you to know the story of what happens. So while we read the prophecy, you can see what happens. All right, Luke 21, verse number one. Jesus looked up, saw the rich, poor, rich putting their gifts into the offering box, and he saw a poor widow 
put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had to live on. He's in the temple. He sees a woman giving everything she possibly can to the Lord. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, they're talking about how beautiful this temple is, how wonderful, I mean, look how big it is. Just go back and look at the map of Jerusalem. Where'd it go? There we go. This, uh, let's go to the next one. Look at the map of Jerusalem. The Temple Mount is almost as big as the city of David. It's definitely as big as the second city, and it's as big as half the third city, the new city. It's beautifully ornate. It was rebuilt by Herod because he was trying, Herod's a Roman leader. He's trying to appease the Jews because Herod was nuts. Uh, most people think he probably had either lead poisoning or salt poisoning or something like that. And so he's crazy, and he decides that everyone is against him, so he's trying to appease the Jews because he does not want the Jewish rebellion to happen on his watch. So he builds this temple. And now it's gone. But when Jesus is talking in Luke 21, it's still there. And they're looking at how beautiful their church building is. Look how wonderful it is. We have big stones. We have Solomon's porch that is a meeting place. We have this ornate, amazing temple that we've had for hundreds of years now. As for these things, this is Jesus speaking, that you see, verse 6, the days will come when, when there will not be left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. There will not be one stone left upon another that won't be thrown down, thrown off of the temple mount. He's prophesying of exactly what we just talked about. And they asked him, teacher, when will these things be? And what will the sign be when these things are about to take place? And he said, see that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am he. The time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified. For these things must first take place. But the end will not be at once. It will take five months. It will take five months of hard fighting from April Till September for the, for the city of Jerusalem to fall. And it would take four years for the entire area. When you hear of wars and tumults and rumors of wars, when you hear about Rome taking over Galilee, know that it's not going to happen all at once. It's going to take some time. Verse number 10. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilence. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. We have record of all of that happening at the same time. See, one of the problems why they didn't have enough food is because Rome happens to come at the Passover and they've been in a drought. But, verse 12, before the, all this they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake, because Nero is going to say that you burned down his city when you really didn't. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds. Do not meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth of wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. Verse 20, when Jesus... Or sorry, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, 
then you know that its desolation has come near. When you see Jerusalem besieged, get out now. The, the book of Matthew says when you see the abomination of desolation, what that, at some point during the siege, they ran out of clean animals. And so the Jews panicked because they have nothing else to, to worship with. They panicked because they, they didn't know what they were supposed to do. And so they started offering fake worship sacrifices. They started offering maimed animals. No animals at all, eventually, once they needed them for food. When you see the abomination of desolation, that's the abomination of desolation. When you see this occurring, get out. Because you see, Titus is up at the top. And they escaped through the holes in the walls in the old city. All the Christians know what's happening. They're listening to Jesus, and they get out of the city before anything ever happens. Verse 22, for these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against the people. Verse 25, there will be signs and suns and moons and stars in the earth, distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. People fainting with fear, with foreboding of what is coming on the world. Rome is now about to destroy everything we've, we've always held as, as true. Everything that we've always held as honorable. They're about to destroy our temple. What are we going to do about it? Now, verse 28, when these things begin to take place, straighten up, raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. The Jews have been persecuting Christians for years at this point, somewhere around 30 years, maybe 40 years, depending on how you date the Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Your redemption is near. The Jews aren't going to persecute you anymore because they're not going to exist anymore. By the way, isn't it interesting that the destruction of Jerusalem happened during Pentecost? Not Pentecost, sorry. Passover. When all of the Jews all over the world are gathered into Jerusalem. Why didn't it happen when the Jews weren't there? Because God is punishing the Jewish people for what they did 40 years earlier in killing the Christ. Verse 29, he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree, all the trees. As soon as they come out of leaves, you see that the summer is about to take place. Verse 32, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. The temple the city of Jerusalem, heaven and earth, if the stars were to end today, Jesus Christ's law, Jesus Christ's words will never end. What he's telling them is, when you see this about to happen, you get out. Because that temple mount is not the important thing. What is important is that you are following my law at all times. And regardless of if there's a temple or not, what happens, this is just an aside, what happens if we come to worship next Sunday and we show up in this building, how beautiful it is, is destroyed by a fire, another fire. What happens when we show up and this building's no longer here? Then we meet at Zaxby's down the road or we meet somewhere and we have worship because the building is not important. He told the Samaritan woman long before this that the building was not important. And what he's saying is, you are Christians. Do not hold on to the temple. Don't hold on to the old law. You hold on to my law. 
And regardless of whether that building is there or not, you still have a law to follow. Let's finish up this passage really quickly. Verse 34. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day may come upon you suddenly like a trap. Don't be paying attention to the world. Don't be focusing on things that draw your attention away from what I've taught you. How easy would it have been for them to be paying attention to all of the things that are going on, this military conquest that's going on, this this destruction of their family and friends in Galilee that is happening. How easy would it have been for these Christians to be focusing on the troubles of this world instead of going back and saying, remember that time that he talked about something like this and he said that we need to get out of here when this starts to occur? It would be pretty easy, wouldn't it? And so he says, don't, Verse 34, watch for yourselves. Don't be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life. Pay attention because this is going to happen and you need to be ready for it. Verse 36, but stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things and that, you are, that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning... All the people came to him in the temple to hear him. Now, why does Luke record that he slept on the mountain of Olivet? Well, first off, because he, was taught, he, he gave this speech on the Olivet Mountain. But also, because this over here, I know it doesn't look like it too much. The, the terrain is kind of messed up on the map. But right here is the, the Mount of Olives. When Titus comes... Where's my map of where Titus was? No, it's right there. When Titus comes, he sets up on the Mount of Olives. Jesus is standing where the Roman armies are going to stand 30, 40 years later, 35 or 40 years later, when they're about to destroy the city of Jerusalem. And he says, you need to be paying attention to me. Now, what in the world does that have to do with anything that a Christian has to deal with today? We are not about to face the destruction of Jerusalem. I know that many people in the world look at the, the Matthew account of this, Matthew 24, and they say that that's talking about the, the Battle of Armageddon. That's not true. We'll talk about the Battle of Armageddon next week. It's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, and that happened 2,000 years ago. So what's the big point? What's, what's the need in this? All right, turn to Luke chapter 19. Before he tells the, the prophecy of what's going to happen, Jesus goes into Jerusalem. This is the week before he's crucified. And he rides into Jerusalem. Verse 41. When he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. This is a different word than in John eleven thirty-five, 35. When Jesus cries because his best friend passed away. When John, or sorry, when Lazarus passes away. Um, this is a different word. This isn't crying. This is violent screaming. Why would Jesus violently scream cries because Jerusalem is about, because he's just seen Jerusalem? Well, because Jerusalem has been the place where he was worshiped. Remember, Jesus is Christ, he's God. He's the focus of the worship in that temple until he forms the New Testament church. And he rides down and he sees, mind you, 
Let me see if I, if I have a, a picture of where he's riding in from. No, not really. You see the, you may be able to see them a little bit. These roads right here that go north, that's where Jesus is right now when he's crying over Jerusalem. Verse 42, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. What's the only way Jerusalem gets out of this destruction? They start following the teachings of Jesus Christ. Because two chapters later, he's going to tell them when they need to get out. And the Jews aren't going to listen to him. But the Christians will. Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes because you refuse to listen to me. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side, tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. They will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. They didn't know when they had the chance to obey the gospel. They didn't see it because it had been hidden from them. Not because God hid it from them, but because they hid it from themselves. They weren't willing to follow it. Here's my question. See if I can pull it up. Here's my question. Is there anything to learn from the destruction of Jerusalem for the New Testament Christian living in 2018? Yes. And that's this. The Jews had a chance, and they didn't take it. And what happened to them was the biggest military might, at least in 200 years, most likely the world had ever seen until that point. The hardest fought battle that the world had ever seen until that point, tied with the Battle of Carthage. Mind you, that people hear about the Battle of Carthage all the time. If you study history, you've studied the Battle of Carthage, and yet we don't talk about the Battle of Jerusalem because people are scared to, because it talks about that in the Bible, and we don't know what the Bible's talking about. We do. Jesus is telling them, you have a chance right now. What are you going to do with it? And here's my question. Do we miss our time of visitation? Sure, God isn't here among us personally. He's here. He's everywhere. But He's not sitting on one of these pews with us. Jesus isn't teaching us anymore. He's not walking around teaching us the Sermon on the Mount. I wish, I, I wish beyond anything in this world that I could hear Jesus preach the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, I study preaching. It's kind of what I do. I want to hear the master teacher speak the most impressive, moralistic teaching that has ever existed on the planet. He's not here to teach us personally. But do we miss our time of visitation? Luke chapter 1 and verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people. The Jews even knew that this was coming. In fact, in the, in the, the Jewish secular writings in Sirach, verse, chapter 18, verse 20, it says this, Before judgment examine thyself, and in the day of visitation thou shalt find mercy. The Jews knew that there was a day of visitation coming, a chance to escape. They just didn't see it when it was in front of them. How many times do we do that? How many times do we look at the chance to escape something? You know, the interesting thing is God never leaves us 
a way, a, a, a problem without a way of escape. That's what 1 Corinthians 10 talks about. With temptation, there also comes the way of escape. He never leaves us without a way of escape. Do we ever see it and miss it? In Bible class this morning, we talked about the fact that Christians no longer have free will. A person who is a member of the body of Christ who has been washed of their sins no longer has the the decision-making capability to make decisions for their lives. That decision is already set down in stone before they ever come to this earth. If you're going to follow Christ, you're going to follow His law. You don't have a choice in the matter. It's not like we can pick and choose parts of religion and parts of Christianity and parts of the world and, and just mix it up and God be okay with it. We can. We have the free will to do it. But, but we give up our free will when we become a Christian and God makes our decisions for us. And I wonder if at times we miss our escape because we're too focused on the world. In Luke chapter 16, there's a man named Lazarus. And a man who is not named. And Jesus tells the story, not the parable, I believe this is a true story, of these two people passing away. And when the rich man gets to torment, he looks up and sees Abraham and he screams to Abraham, have mercy on me, send Lazarus that he can dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. And Abraham says, no, you've had your blessings in the the life past and now there's no way he can even go over there. And so the rich man says, please send people back because if they knew, send Lazarus back to tell my family because if they knew what I knew right now, they wouldn't do this. They wouldn't live the same way I lived. Christianity is all about the the opportunity. And at some point we run out of opportunities. And when we run out of the opportunities, we don't have any other opportunities option. At some point, Jerusalem ran out of the opportunities. I hope that there were Jews in Jerusalem during the siege that saw Christians packing up their stuff and said, hey, where are you going? And they said, Jesus told us to get out of here and we're doing that. And they packed up their stuff and followed the Christians and obeyed the gospel. but I don't think it happened. Jesus wept because the Jews had already made their decision at that point. And I hope that as human beings with free will, we will not miss our decision-making opportunity. And if you need to obey the gospel, you need to make that decision now while you have the opportunity. My phone is always on. The phones of the men at this church are always on. And most of us, if not all of us, have keys to this building. If you decide to obey the gospel at 2 a.m. and they won't answer the phone, call me and I'll meet you up here. But here's the catch. You don't know if 2 a.m. is going to happen. So if you need to obey the gospel, you need to do it right now. We'll stand and sing a song of encouragement for you and let us know while we do that.